One of the most urgent tasks facing evangelicalism today is the recovery of the gospel. So said J.I. Packer in his introduction to John Owen's The Death of Death, clear back in the 1950s. And here on the Pactum, we think that if it were true in the 1950s, it most certainly is true in the 21st century. The gospel is of first importance. First Corinthians 15 tells us that. And so in that light, we are doing this series on the Pactum called Gospel Doctrines, where we look at the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension. We even looked at the incarnation. I'm Pat Abendroth. Welcome to the Pactum. Thank you for listening today. And thank you for listening in 2023. This will be the last episode that airs in 2023. And it has been quite the year. So many things to be thankful for. And we are certainly thankful that you allow us to be a part of your life. And Lord willing, we are going to have an excellent 2024. I'll make a special thanks or say a special thanks to Mike Grimes, my co-host, because he does so much to make the Pactum the Pactum and so many things behind the scenes. And I'm grateful for Mike. And speaking of Mike, he's actually not with us today for the episode, episode 152. He is away. So yes, it will be a Lone Ranger edition. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust and a hearty high silver. The Lone Ranger. On our last episode, we talked about the death of Christ. It's part one of a two-parter regarding the death of Christ, which is also, not to be confusing, a part of a series called Gospel Doctrines. And so in episode 151, you might want to check that out if you haven't yet. We talked about why Jesus died. We talked about his whole life being a life of suffering. And we talked about substitutionary atonement, vicarious atonement, uh, the fact that his uh, work was propitiatory, that it did make atonement, that it brought reconciliation reconciliation, secured redemption, that he didn't just make us savable and all sorts of important realities. Got some great feedback. So thank you for that. And on today, this second uh, installment regarding the death of Christ, we will talk about opposition to substitutionary atonement. We will talk about other unbiblical explanations of the atonement. We'll mention the burial. We'll even give a negative shout out to Mormonism and all sorts of things. We talk about N.T. Wright, assurance, lack of assurance, as well as some resources. And I'll just say up front, because it's on my mind, when it comes to resources, redemption accomplished and applied by John Murray is a great resource dealing with the death of Christ, it being substitutionary, it being uh, uh, paying for the penalty of our sins. It is an outstanding little little book, and we would encourage you to check that out. I'll mention it again, and it will be in the show notes. So let's now grapple with this matter of why anyone would oppose the death of Christ. Why would someone not like the death of Christ? Well, if they are inherently against the reality tied to the death of Christ, they would be against it. It seems kind of strange. But for example, Muslims, and there are many Muslims in the world, they do not think that Jesus died on the cross. Uh, according to that 7th century religion, uh, they, they don't think he actually even died, that he was somehow uh, mysteriously and uh, miraculously taken up to heaven. So it is an anti Christ dying religion. That would make it an anti Christ religion if you want to speak properly. 
And I guess it would make sense in a certain sense because they don't actually have a category for atonement, for objective justice being paid. God may or may not deliver you. God may or may not save you. It's up to him, they would say. God is sovereign. But there's no basis for God actually saving anyone, whereas in biblical Christianity, it's logical. He saves because atonement is actually made through death, right? The wages of sin is death. Christ dies for our sins. And so we have a basis for uh, atonement. It's not just up to uh, God doing whatever he wants to do based upon his sovereignty. No, he is sovereign, but he maintains his justice while providing justification through the death of Christ. Episode 14 is called Christianity and Islam. We would encourage you to check it out because you'll probably learn some things and hopefully be a better a better friend and a better neighbor to love your friends who may be involved or confused by Islam. Okay, let's move on now and let's say other people would deny the death of Christ if they maybe denied his humanity. And I don't come across very many people like this today, but it actually was a thing in things like Gnosticism or precursors to Gnosticism. Even books like in the Bible, books like First John deals with people who deny his humanity as if he were some kind of mystical figure. Uh, but if he's not a real human being, he obviously wouldn't really die. So there is that. I would also point you back to the episode that we did on the life of Christ, talking about how important his humanity actually is. Other people would reject the death of Christ as, and again, death of Messiah, because they would never want a Messiah to die, because they would only want a Messiah to be victorious in, in all the ways they would want the Messiah to be victorious, never mind the fact that we have the scriptures talking about this scandalous nature of Messiah dying to save his people from their sins. Yes, victoriously also rising, but that is a problem. The Apostle Paul knew full well when he went to Corinth uh, that it was not going to, to settle well with them for him to preach a crucified king. And he talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and following, maybe also even dealing with the Jews in Romans chapter 9. Now, there are others who, uh, they don't deny the reality of Christ's death, but they deny that it is a substitutionary atonement that paid the penalty so we talk about, uh, even in when it comes to crime and punishment in the United States, we talk about our penal system and dealing with penalties, things like prisons and jails, uh, the, the, the penal code, if you will. And, and in theology, uh, we talk about the substitutionary atonement, the penal substitutionary atonement. And by that, we mean the penalty, right? So in, in, Reformed orthodoxy, if you will, in classic traditional Christianity, we would call it, we would say in biblical Christianity, he pays the penalty via being a substitute that actually propitiates, that actually makes atonement. Now, there are people who would affirm that he died, but they don't affirm all of that. So, for example, those who are naturalists, those who think that Jesus was only a human being and he didn't die to pay a penalty and it wasn't a, an actual substitutionary atonement. Uh, for example, theological liberals, people who are theologically leftist and they're embarrassed by something like the wrath of God and, and that God is angry with sin and sinners, Psalm 5.5. Five. And they think, oh, that, that just won't... 
you know, that won't sell, that won't go, sophisticated people won't like that. It's not the things that people like to talk about at dinner parties where there's wrath and blood and atonement and propitiation uh, because, you know, God's not angry with sweet little old people like us. Well, they, they may affirm the death of Christ, but it's not uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Also, we could talk about people who Oh, and by the way, Jay Gresson Machen gives a great response in his 1923 book, Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, he says that such folks are trampling on human hearts. And by that, I think what he means is maybe the theological leftist thinks they're doing people a favor by not making them feel bad, that God is angry with them and they need someone to pay the penalty. But Machen basically is giving pushback saying, you know, you're not, you're, you're not helping as a matter of fact, you're trampling on human hearts because the human heart actually knows that it is guilty and that God is not pleased and therefore we need help and we need a substitute in Christ to pay the penalty. And I think Machen is exactly right. There would be others who don't like a PSA. It's not a public service announcement, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, because they don't like the sufficiency of Christ's death. And Roman Catholicism would be an example uh, of a religious organization that uses the label Christian, and they are not fans of assurance. In fact, they really don't like assurance. And so they have Christ dying, obviously. And if you, if you walk into a cathedral and you see the crucifix, crucifix, and you may find that offensive. Well, so they're for the cross and they're for Christ dying, uh, even if it's represented in a way that ought not be represented, but it's not sufficient. It doesn't bring assurance. And so you have to introduce things like the mass. Uh, you have to introduce things like purgatory, where there can be purgation, more payment made. You have to introduce things like uh, Mary uh, being a co-redeemer, if you will. And so Council of Trent, session 22 on the sacrifice of the mass, chapter two, it teaches that the mass is propitiatory. Why? Because the historic on uh, in the Middle East 2000 years ago, outside of the city gates, it was propitiatory, but not enough, if you will. And so you have the mass and they would say it is propitiatory. Okay. It's not, it's not communion. It's not spiritual presence. Uh, it's not. Uh, mystical presence or any of things like that. It, it is, he's actually present and it is actually propitiatory, which we would find to be problematic. Purgatory again, uh, more payment needs to be made because you don't, you don't have a perfect PSA, penal substitutionary atonement or, and, or you have Mary also involved in bringing about redemption because you don't have a sufficient death of Christ. This is from EWTN. Uh, so Catholic Network, this is from Father William G. Most. He says this closely related to the Catholic teaching on Mary's cooperation in the redemption is the teaching that with, through, and under her son, she is mediatrix of all graces. Last time I checked, that's not official Catholic dogma, but it is widely held by Roman Catholics even to be there listed at EWTN. So Roman Catholicism, yes, they affirm the death of Christ, but they don't affirm it in the biblical sense. Somehow it is lacking. Somehow it is not enough to give you sufficient ground for assurance. And so why would people oppose the death of Christ? Well, they oppose it for lots of different reasons. 
But I think those are enough reasons for us, and we're going to go ahead and move on. So next thing I'd like to have us think about today on the Pactum, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. All of the love and support and allowing us to help you think through the issues. Uh, Let's entertain this question, and it's a big one. What have been some of the unbiblical explanations of the death of Christ? And there are so many of them uh, that I'm not going to try to be exhaustive, but I will send you to Dr. Burkoff. Uh, so paging Dr. Burkoff, come in Dr. Burkoff. So Louis Burkoff and his systematic theology uh, does a nice job, as nice of a job as anyone else at listing some of these. I'll just kind of give you the highlights, but it's good to be aware of what some of the unbiblical explanations of specifically the atonement and the death of Christ have been. So perhaps we can try to not commit the same errors today. And also, as you listen through these, be listening for the kernels of truth, uh, kernels of truth that is found in most of them, not all of them, But so many times we hear something and we think, you know what, that sounds good. And that's reasonable because something about it sounds good, but it's lacking in something. And so be listening for the good and also be listening for or be paying attention to what might not be there. So first of all, on his list uh, would be the ransom to Satan theory. And so that was held uh, by origin that Jesus didn't, you know, satisfy the just wrath of God as the one paying the penalty and bringing about propitiation. Instead, it was somehow Satan needed to be paid. And hopefully you know that that's not true. It's not like uh, in mythology where there's two equal forces, one good, one bad, one light, one darkness, and it's God against the devil. Well, God is against the devil and the devil is against God, but they are by no means what? They're by no means peers. Um, and so God is the just judge. Satan is not the just judge. So uh, it, he's the righteous and righteousness needs to be uh, satisfied. And we need to have Christ's righteousness, not because somehow Satan wants it. Uh, he doesn't need to be uh, satisfied. No, God needs to be satisfied, if you will, his justice. And one popular expression, and this is debatable, but one popular uh, expression of this would be found in C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, at least in the movie. When I watched the movie, I at least got that impression. And it doesn't take long to do a Google search to find out that people will defend Lewis and say, no, he didn't hold to this view. And perhaps he didn't. But you, a lot of people have been confused, at least in thinking that he did. And so if you are a Lewis aficionado, may the Lord bless you. Uh, I'm not saying I didn't like the movie. As a matter of fact, I really enjoyed the movie with my kids years ago, and I still enjoy listening to the soundtrack, but it could be clearer regarding what is going on. Another unbiblical perspective on the atonement would be what's called the recapitulation theory. Almost hard to say. The recapitulation theory, it was held in some form by Irenaeus in church history, And it is somehow by the incarnation and human life, Jesus reverses the course on which Adam by his sin started humanity. So it's a reversal of course. It's a, you know, if you're somehow think of the analogy and you're sailing somewhere and you get off course and it's going to lead to trouble, you're not going to arrive, arrive where you want to arrive. You need to, to change course and you need to redirect. So it is through the death of Christ that the human race has been redirected. And so now we're, you know, in a sense, it's kind of like a do-over. So we need to still seek, you know, ethical transformation in our lives. And somehow through our obedience, uh, we can, you know, do a better job as little atoms, if you will. 
So Christ's obedience was important. It compensates, but now it still ends up being about our obedience. And obviously you as Pactum listeners know that this is a problem. The recapitulation theory states that the atonement of Christ has reversed the course of humankind from disobedience to obedience. And so now we need to be good little obeyers and we will eventually be able to secure salvation. See, it's true. We're supposed to obey and we're supposed to obey in light of the cross. But what we mean by that as reformed Christians, as biblical Christians, is far different from the recapitulation theory. It's not just some kind of a, of a do-over. Another errant view of the atonement would be the satisfaction theory or otherwise known as the commercial theory. It's not so much uh, important that you know the labels for these, but just spot the errors in them. According to the satisfaction theory of Anselm, he would have been a proponent of it. Uh, Satisfaction paid to God is satisfaction uh, paid because his dignity is offended. So God is is great is to be greatly honored, which is true, um, but it's not about satisfying the just wrath of God. It's about showing God the honor due His name. So it's not about penalty in the satisfaction theory. It's about seeing God for being great. Again, He is great, and we should see Him as great. But more must be done than just that. Penalty must be paid. Okay, the wages of sin is death. We need to have that payment made for violating God's just standards. According to one resource, Christ's death is substitutionary in this sense. So see, it's still substitutionary, but it's lacking. They say, according to this theory, the satisfaction theory, uh, he pays the honor instead of us. But that substitution is not penal. It is not about penalty. His death pays our honor, not our penalty. So obviously it is problematic. Let's move on to another uh, errant view of the atonement. Error, error, error today on the pactum. Sorry about all of that, but I hope it's for good ultimately. And that would be the moral influence theory. And according to the moral influence theory, what we have is a manifestation of God's love. So the cross is a manifestation of God's love. True? Absolutely true. It's the greatest act of love that we could ever imagine. Uh, But it is him loving us and coming to suffer with his sinful creatures. So he's trying to impress us with his love. And so he comes and first and foremost, in a sense, it's not for us. uh, it's, It's with us trying to woo us, trying to you know, romanticize us, if you will. I'm making that up, but I'm trying to capture the idea to so impress us with the divine love that would soften human hearts and would lead us to repentance. And uh, again, a lot of good there, but the problem is um, there's more involved. The only requirement, according to this, is that sinners come to him with penitent hearts. Well, we want to have penitent hearts, but we actually need the penalty to be paid. But you can see some of this happening in, again, more theologically liberal churches or churches that aren't clear-minded, maybe playing off of people's emotions uh, more than, sure, emotions are great, but more than the facts regarding penalty, consequence, justice, wrath, condemnation, those sorts of things. There's also the example theory of the atonement. And so if you think that the WWJD movement, you know, just came about in the 1990s or the 1980s and whenever it did come about, I don't recall, but this, this is the WWJD uh, movement and the Socinians were big proponents, even in 
wait for it, the 16th century. So, you know, think about Jesus. The greatest act of love is Jesus would die for his friends. Well, that's true that it is an amazing reality that Jesus would die for his friends, but he doesn't just die for his friends so that his friends can then learn how to do it themselves. That's not the case at all. He dies for his friends as a substitute paying the, how many times am I going to say this today? Paying the penalty because of sin. But in the example theory, it's by giving them an example of true obedience, both in his life and in his death. And then by inspiring, inspiring us to lead a similar kind of life to gain the acceptance of God, which is again, Socinianism, it is liberalism. It is, um, showing itself to be alive and alive and well, even in some evangelical churches today. First and foremost, as Burkhoff says, and this is a great quote, he says, he, meaning Christ, is our redeemer before he can be our example. And since we talk so much about law and gospel on the pactum, I'll do it yet again here. Yes, it's true. Jesus is the perfect example. But when we see his perfect example, what should we conclude? We must conclude, I could never do that. He perfectly upheld God's law. He did all of the right things all of the time. So I need him as my substitute because I haven't. I need him to pay the penalty for me. And then, yes, out of gratitude unto him, he is our example. So you'll find plenty of example texts in the Bible. Don't run from those. Embrace those. But just know that those are not the means to salvation. And when people are speaking as if they are the means to salvation, you, you have a, a case in point of confusing law and gospel. Let's move on now to one called the governmental theory. And the governmental theory, uh, you might not hear it labeled as such today, but think of uh, Methodists, the denomination, United Methodists. Think of the Nazarenes. Uh, think of the kind of Wesleyan holiness movement. And thankfully, some folks involved in such, in such movements and groups and church denominations do not hold to the governmental theory. I think within the denominations, within the congregations, because of the Bible, many people would not affirm these things, but some of their key theologians have been proponents of the governmental theory. And it is quite honestly, a disaster. It is sub-Christian. It is anti-Christian. It's not saving, unfortunately. For example, here, here's one explanation. God loves the human race. So far, so, so good, Pactum listeners? I hope so. God loves the human race. Although he has the right to punish it, punish it for sin, it is not Oh, it is not necessary or mandatory that he do so. He can forgive sin and absolve humans of guilt. Well, based upon what? It has to be based upon something or he's not a just judge. Now, this goes takes us back to kind of the, the Islam perspective that I mentioned. It is possible. It is possible for God to relax the law. I hope you've got alarm bells going off in your head. It is possible for God to relax the law so that he need not exact a specific punishment or penalty for each violation. And that is patently false. Throughout the scripture, from beginning to end, it celebrates his righteousness. It celebrates his justice. It, the, the whole world longs for the coming Messiah to come where it's actually 
upheld and acted out on earth. So many of the problems in the world are because of injustice, because of the relax, uh, relaxing of law, for example. God does not relax his law. He is the just and the justifier. We learn in the New Testament of the one who has faith in Jesus, meaning he upholds the standard. He doesn't compromise it in any way, shape, or form. And he also saves sinners. How can he do so? Because of penal substitutionary atonement, not to mention his life, which we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Another person commenting on this reality says this, Christ by his death actually paid the penalty for no man's sin. That, if that is governmental theory, and it is, we have such a massive problem and it is not Christian. If it's true that Christ by his death actually paid the penalty for no man's sin, we have a problem going on to explain it. What his death did was to demonstrate what their sins deserved and yet permits God justly to forgive men if on other grounds, such as their faith, their repentance, their works, and their perseverance. And by doing those things, they meet his demand. This is a massive problem. But you you hear it sometimes when you hear speak, people speaking, it's as if somehow faith is what justifies. Faith is what saved. Faith is a terrible savior. Faith cannot save anyone. Faith is never going to justify anyone as uh, the, the justifier, if you will. Repentance is a great thing. Repentance is important. Repent, repentance is vital, but it's not saving. Works are important. Same thing could be said, but they're not saving. Perseverance is wonderful and important, but it's not saving. All of this is because only the work of Christ is saving. The good news, taking us back to the definition of the gospel, the good news of the work of Christ, the person and work of Christ. The gospel is the good news about who Jesus is and what he accomplishes. He and he alone saves. He and he alone justifies. He and he alone brings atonement, propitiates the justice of God. Governmental theory, somehow God can relax his standards. That would be blasphemous. That would that would have... If it were possible, think with me about this, it would lead to an insurrection in heaven, right? The angels would not praise God because he would be an unjust God. Instead, they're baffled by his great provision, if you will, in light of first Peter. So Michael Horton says this about this view, which I think he captures. It's not his view, but he's critiquing it in his systematic theology called the Christian faith. He says, in this view, God saves sinners, not on the basis of Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection, but on the basis of their own imperfect obedience to a relaxed divine law. Not the case. God does not lower the standard through Jesus Lots of people think that he doesn't lower the standard. No, the standard never changes, nor could it ever change, but he meets the obligation through his son, the Lord Jesus. And this is what's talked about in Romans chapter 10, another unbiblical view. And then we'll get things moving a little bit further with a couple of quick ones, but another one that's very popular and it is called the Christus Victor view of the atonement from the Latin Christ the victor. And absolutely, I hope everyone who resides in, functions in, lives in the pactum verse would affirm that Christ is the victor, that he has power over the world. He has power over Satan and he is the king over all. He has the right to rule and reign, the rightful king of the cosmos. Absolutely. And yet, 
we are not saying, yeah, the Christus Victor view is the view. It's popular. People like N.T. Wright are big fans of it. Uh, liberation theologians where they want to transform the culture and bring about perfect justice on the earth in the here and now through political means. More recent Anabaptists, people who don't like a violent atonement where it's penal satisfaction uh, atonement. They like this view. Uh, the, the problem ends up being it ends up being at the expense of the penal substitutionary atoning work of Christ. And I realize that N.T. Wright can be fuzzy about it and say, well, both can be true. But one thing you won't have him emphasizing, at least in what I've heard, though he changes at times, to stress the wrath, to stress the penalty of what happens at Calvary's cross, that he is satisfying the wrath of God because of justice, because of, because uh, his law has been violated and justice must be upheld and that it is that first and foremost. And yet that, that is inseparable from, that's true. It is inseparable from the messianic work of Christ. True. He defeats Satan. Absolutely true. But what ends up happening is this sort of thing, the Christus Victor view, it should be included, but not prioritized in the sense that it's not about our transforming the culture in light of Christ's work. And it ends up being used that way. That's why, why theological leftists, that's why uh, liberation theologians like it. And that's why we hear it show itself in phrases like we're transforming the culture. We're redeeming the culture. And we have this model for Christ church to be redeeming the culture. That kind of talk en ends up being spoken because we're somehow up playing universal dominion and reign, but we have this over-realized eschatology. Sure. It is true. He, there's been the inauguration of the kingdom. But it's not been consummated and it won't be consummated until his return. And it is also telling that when this view is stressed, you end up not stressing penal substitutionary atonement. And you also, with it, end up stressing things like justification by not faith alone, but justification by faithfulness, which would make sense because it is our having to transform things, our having to do things because also his justice and his just requirement has not been satisfied. So not a big fan for that view unless we can accept it in a way that is more careful, that it's included in the whole, but that's not typically how it's been used, at least in my experience. Typically, what I, my, my observation with what happens with N.T. Wright is he says a lot of things that tr are true. In fact, sometimes he's very observant and says things that are true that we have forgotten to emphasize, but at the expense of things that must also be rightly emphasized. And it ends up being, I found more often than, than not at, exp at the expense of clarity regarding the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and justification by grace alone through faith alone on account of Christ alone. How about another deviant view? And that other deviant view would be, and this one is so far outside of the pale that maybe it doesn't deserve to be on our list, but I want to include it because so many of you know Mormons like I no Mormons. And that would be a deviant view of Christ's work, a deviant view of the atonement. And that would be the Mormons view. I'll just read from one 
Mormon source and there can be all kinds of quotes saying the same thing. I'll just choose this one from MRM.org and it says, but in reality, the pain and suffering, the triumph and grandeur of the atonement took place primarily in, wait for it, Gethsemane. The first time I heard that, I couldn't believe it. That that that's the focal point. That that's where that's where the atone the the atonement centers is is in Gethsemane. Now I'm I'm all for the whole life of Christ was a life of suffering, absolutely, and he suffered for his people, and it culminates. But it doesn't culminate. I, I can't even finish my sentence. It culminates at the cross, obedience, death, even death on a cross. It most certainly culminates on the cross, and even all Christians have believed this. <laughs> And so Mormonism, unlike all Christians, because it's not Christian, uh, say it is at Gethsemane. Did Jesus suffer there? Absolutely. Was he suffering in our place? Absolutely. But that is not the high point by any means. You have to work hard to somehow come up with such views. It's... It's important that you remember when it comes to Mormonism, episode 99 of the Pactum would be a good episode to listen to. It's important that they use our vocabulary, lots of our vocabulary, but they're using it and operating in an entirely different universe. Okay. So it is, is totally different. They mean something different by God. They mean something different by Jesus and on and on the list goes. I love Mormons. Uh, I've, proven it to be friends with Mormons. I despise Mormonism. It is not even a kind of Christianity. It's why it's been labeled so many times throughout the ages as a cult uh, because of things like we just mentioned. All right, let's talk about the burial of Christ. So this is something that's not really been on my radar much. You know, people who believe in Jesus' death, they believe in his, his burial, but we don't say, oh, it's part of the gospel. And I'm still not saying that. We're not going to do an extra episode on the vital gospel doctrines and you must believe in the burial. Well, if you believe in his death, generally speaking, I think you're going to believe in his burial. And so it's not like it's a big controversial issue. But Burkhoff oftentimes says things that make you go, hmm. Or, hmm. Okay, so with that said, listen to what Louis Burkhoff says about the burial of Christ. And I think it does help me appreciate the work of Christ even more. I hope it helps you to appreciate his work as well. He says, his burial, speaking about Jesus, also formed a part of his humiliation. Man's returning to the dust from which he is taken is represented in scripture as part of the punishment of sin. Genesis 319. The Savior's abode in the grave was a humiliation. Psalm 1610, Acts 227 and 31, Acts 1334 and 35. Burial is going down and therefore a humiliation. The burial of dead bodies was ordered by God to symbolize the humiliation of the sinner. The Bible speaks of the sinners being buried with Christ. His burial, moreover, did not merely serve to prove that Jesus was really dead, but also to remove the terrors of the grave from the redeemed and to sanctify the grave for them. I like it. I think I can get behind it. Now let's talk about assurance. You knew we were going there. It's the trajectory. We talk about assurance a lot on the pactum and and it's for good reason, in part because the, the doctrine of assurance has fallen on hard times, but also because God wants his children to be 
sure. If you read Romans 8, you know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. He wants us to enjoy being heirs and knowing that we are heirs and having it be irreversible uh, in our minds and hearts, that we can sleep well at night, that we can thrive, that we can be bold, even in light of Romans 8, that we can be fearless, that we can be courageous and face anything and everything because we are assured and our assurance is tied to yes the life of christ in his perfect obedience crediting his righteousness to us check out the episode a couple of episodes ago but also when it comes to the death of christ if he paid the penalty through his substitutionary atoning work that propitiation isn't potential propitiation it is sure propitiation it is not potential atonement it is the atoning work of christ that atones it is as murray says redemption accomplished and applied we have the once and for all death of christ yes the death of christ should dear christian give you assurance It should give you assurance that what has been provided for you can't be taken away and that nothing else is necessary. Nothing else must be done. You don't need purgatory. You don't need Mary to be the co-redemptrix. You don't need any of those things. You don't need the mass. You don't need your good to outweigh your bad. We didn't get a mulligan and we're not having a do-over like Rick Warren says. No, none of those things are true. We have assurance. Jesus is the one who said in John 1930, it is true finished. His work is done, complete for his people. He gave himself up for us. Colossians 2.14 is just such a magnificent promise to us where it says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside how nailing it to the cross. That is what God has done for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is how we respond to that. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is is just filled with assurance because of the perfect work, including his humanity, including his deity, including his his priestly work, etc. It's so wonderful. And I'll just reference one text and it's Hebrews 10.10. But read Hebrews 7. Read Hebrews 9. Hebrews 10.10 says that by That will, and by that will, we have been sanctified. We have been cleansed, in other words, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How definitive, how glorious, done, paid in full, secure. And now we could go on. I can't help myself. Now he always lives to make intercession for us. Absolutely awesome. Well, how about some resource, how about some resources? Some we've already recommended on the last episode. I'll do it again. In my place condemned he stood by J.I. Packer and Mark Dever. Accessible, readable, easy to get to. Subtitle is Celebrating the Glory of the Atonement. I really enjoyed that book. Nothing new there. Just uh, bringing us the old good truths from the Bible and highlighting them theologically. Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. Looking forward to reading that in a group here sometime soon. Uh, Read the Canons of Dort. You will be edified and encouraged by those. Also, those are the original responses, the original formal responses to the followers of 
Jacob Arminius with the five points of Arminianism uh, dispel that myth. Uh, Calvin didn't come up with the five points. As a matter of fact, he wasn't even alive for the canons of Dort with the five responses. Uh, we call them the five points of Calvinism, but really first they were the five points of Arminianism and those who were the biblical ones responded by saying, you guys are unbiblical regarding the work of Christ. You can contact us on X at the Pactum. You can get to us through our website, thepactum.org. We're on Instagram, the Pactum at the Pactum Theology. You can also email us, connect at the Pactum.org. Thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you as you close out 2023 and enjoy a wonderful 2024 for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.